Glad you're all here today. And you might notice there's something new up on the stage, and I might sound slightly different. So before we start, I'll explain the speakers and, and all of this. We received a donation specifically for audio and visual help to prepare us for the revival that we're going to be holding here in mid-August. So in August, we're going to have a four-day revival put on by Jack Sherman. We'll be doing the preaching, and we'll have various uh, groups and folks that will be coming and leading worship services. So it'll be every night for four nights, um, starting, I don't have the date right in front of me. But in order to support that, we were donated money in order to purchase a PA system and a new projector that uh, will be a little brighter than this and also hooks up to the computer, which will allow us to get the sound from the computer down to here. And we'll probably also get some sound treatment for this room, so some of the echo that you hear will also go down a little bit. So that was an anonymous donation sent to bless the church, so we praise God for that, and that's why you have this here. So with that, we are back in Luke chapter 12. Jesus has been talking and telling us all sorts of stuff. He's been telling us to be ready. Last week, we went through and had a message on we need to be prepared. We need to be ready. Today, he goes on to tell us what we need to expect from the world and that we need to be watchful. So we're going to jump right in. Be watchful. The end is, that is, it really is near. So you get the crazy, the end is near sermon today. That'll be fun, right? The end times are approaching. We're going to start in Luke 12, verse 49. And Jesus is talking again. He's picking up. He has just been telling people to be ready. And he uh, used an analogy of a master that had left the house and had been gone for a long time and said that we need to be like the servants of that household, ready to receive the master, whether he comes on the first watch, the second watch, or the third watch. We need to be about our business. So right after that, he continues on in verse 49 and says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it's accomplished. Now the baptism that he has to undergo that he's referring to here is his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, his ultimate defeat of death for all time. Once he undergoes that baptism, a fire is going to be kindled on the earth. Now this has multiple meanings. Ultimately, when he says that I have come to cast a fire upon the earth, he is referring to the ultimate fire that will consume the earth prior to a new heavens and new earth. But the immediate sense that he's speaking about right now is the fire of the gospel that is going to spread throughout the entire earth. And that fire is a consuming fire. What does a fire do? It burns up the things that are temporary. And scripture constantly points us to the fact that a fire strengthens the things that are durable, that last. A refiner's fire. So when Jesus says, I have come to cast a fire upon the earth, he's talking about the fire of the gospel that will go out and burn. He goes on to say, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? Well, he is the Prince of Peace, right? Jesus is, especially the one that we see in our popular culture, here. he's warm and fuzzy, he loves you, he just wants you to sit in his lap. I tell you no, but to ra rather division. Jesus has come, and this fire that he is kindling, this fire of the gospel, is not going to bring peace immediately. In fact, it's going to bring division. Even division, not just within society in general, but even division within households. He says, for, from now on, one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. 
They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This is something that in our culture in America, we truly haven't experienced too much yet. But if you go to Africa, if you go to Syria, if you go to China, if you go to any place where the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ is illegal, under penalty of prison or in some places death, to proclaim the name of Jesus not only puts yourself in danger, but also your family. And there are families that will turn in their own children. In Africa, there were whole areas where people would go and they would get baptized publicly, knowing that if they went back to their house, that their own parents would put them to death. In Islam, converting to Christianity is a death penalty. And the parents will do an honor killing. They will kill their own children. This is something we haven't experienced in American Christianity. Yet, though it's starting, not to the point of death just yet, but certainly division. In fact, I see this in my own family. In my own family, I have my um, stepmother, and maybe she'll listen to this online, and uh, all that, I'll tell her that I talked about her. She and I have some fundamental disagreement. She is not a believer. She has seen the change in my life and appreciates that and glad that I found something that works for me, but she really wishes that I just wasn't so harsh and that so backwards, and if I could just back off of some of those intolerant views of Christianity, such as my bigoted response to the Supreme Court ruling a couple weeks ago about homosexual marriage. If I would just be more tolerant and accepting, and go ahead and redefine in my head what marriage is, then she would be able to accept me more. The fact that I continue what she classifies as my backwards, bigoted definition of marriage is between one man and one woman is something that she can't get beyond. And it has already started a division in our family. Because, and I'm actually not speaking hyperbolically here, I'm not exaggerating her view. She really does look at it as this is something that is almost akin to racism from her perspective. But yet, I cannot look at Scripture and say that a marriage is anything other than an institution between one man and one woman before God for life. Period. That's what marriage is. Now, what she doesn't understand is that that doesn't mean that I hate homosexuals. In fact, quite the opposite. Anybody that is engaged in any sort of sin, I identify with quite readily, because, hey, I'm a sinner too. But she doesn't see that. So our family has already been divided on this issue. I know other families that are divided along lines of science and that sort of thing, but what I can tell you is that this issue of um, homosexual marriage is one that is going to be used to cause this same sort of division. And like I talked about a couple of weeks ago, our response is to not panic, but realize Jesus told us this would happen. It has been happening all over the world for 2,000 years. This fire that he kindled 2,000 years ago has been going through and causing division. If you stand for biblical truth, you are going to encounter division, and he promised it. We now get to experience that a little bit. This is not a time to panic. It's a time to realize that we get to be that those good soldiers of Christ that we sing about all the time. We actually get to get out and, and play the game. We're not insulated anymore. And this isn't a bad thing, it's a good thing. Because what is the other thing that fire does? It burns, but it strengthens what's durable. A refiner's fire 
will strengthen the church. When we have to deal with some division, some persecution, when we have to stand up for our beliefs and speak boldly to those who aren't particularly interested in hearing us, that strengthens our faith and it will strengthen the church if we are seeking Christ through all of that. And here again we see that 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I am kindling this fire, and from now on, not today, but from now on, this is the type of thing that we can expect. And you now can expect to start to see this more in the United States. We will have to deal with this as a church. Don't be surprised. Don't be afraid. It's okay. God is with you. God is in control. And God has placed us here to handle this situation, knowing that we are equipped by his Holy Spirit to handle it appropriately. And as we go through this, he was also saying, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming, and so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it will be a hot day, and it turns out that way. You hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? So the United States has been insulated for the most part from persecution, from any of the type of things that we see promised in the Bible, the hatred that we see. Jesus says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Hated me first. We've been insulated from that. And right now, that insulation is being removed, and we're having to deal with it. Another problem that the American church has is we are lazy. We are self-centered. We are focused on our own pleasure, our own comfort, and not particularly interested in spreading the gospel and living the life that's laid out here. Well, that's all got to change. When Jesus came, he chastised those around him for not recognizing what was happening. Here, the promised Messiah, the one that the Jews had been looking for for thousands of years, has showed up according to prophecy, according to scripture, and they didn't see it. This is also a message to us to be analyzing the times. He just went through and said, we need to be ready. We need to be like the servants in the household that are active about their master's business, looking and waiting for his return. Well, this is where I get to the fun part. The end is near, guy. You know, we've, we've all seen in movies, and some of us have actually seen people on the street corners with the, these signs, right? But we've certainly seen it in movies. In fact, movies have made fun of this message for a long time. This one is saying, you know, we got this guy out preaching on a street corner, rain, hail, floods, heat, fire, and drought, wind, tornadoes, and hurricanes. And what you don't see there, because it's cutting it off, is it says, remember when this guy sounded crazy? I submit to you that that doesn't sound so crazy anymore. I said before that every generation before ours has been convinced that they are living in the end times and Jesus is going to come back in their lifetime. And they've all been wrong. And it's not my fault that they're wrong and I'm right. But I say that kind of jokingly. I also think that Scripture bears out that we really do need to be looking because things are happening in our time that could not have happened before. So we've had people standing on street corners saying the end is near for 2,000 years. Why should we think any differently? Well, first of all, if we go to 2 Peter 3, 4, we'll see that the Bible anticipates this particular objection. Paul writes, first of all, know this, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So the Bible says the people will be saying, yeah, nothing's changed. 
He's not coming. There's a logical fallacy here as well. By this logic, I'm immortal. Why? Well, I haven't died yet. So if I haven't died yet, that means, by my experience, I'll never die. If Jesus hasn't come back yet, that means he ain't gonna, right? No. We are promised he's going to come back. But you might say, well, people have been saying that for 2,000 years, so that doesn't prove anything. Well, what is prophesied? What does have to happen that can only happen in our lifetime? I went through and thought about going and giving you all of the, uh, the, the references here, um, but they're, they're myriad, they're many. I didn't want you flipping back and forth through the Bible, so I'm going to give you homework and tell you you can go find these. But this is just a, a short list of things that are required to happen for Jesus to return by prophetic word that were not possible before about 100 years ago, before our generation. So the first, the reconstitution of Israel. Scripture explicitly says that Israel must be a state, must be back in the land of Canaan. Now in 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed. And since then, Israel existed on and off, kind of, but for the most part, the Jews were spread throughout the world for the past 2,000 years. Israel did not exist as a state. And every generation that had said, Jesus is coming back in our time, had to account for the fact that Israel didn't exist. And most of them would say, well, the church is spiritual Israel. Israel has now been replaced by the church. But that's not what Scripture says. 1948, Israel was reconstituted. According to prophetic word and just like God promised, Israel is now back on the map. That happened within our lifetime. No other generation could have expected Jesus to return because Israel was not back. Israel is back. Another one. And this one actually touches several of the others. Instantaneous worldwide communication. As we look at what Jesus said about the end times, he mentioned that there will be wars, rumors of wars, that there will be ability for the information of his coming um, or the false prophets coming to get around the world in an instant. Now, they didn't know what that meant, but right now, for the first time ever, we have the ability to know what's going on on the other side of the world and communicate instantly. Even in my lifetime, when I was a kid, that wasn't possible. I mean, do you remember being a kid and you'd try to call, you know, Alaska, from Alaska down, down the states and you had that echo, you know, sometimes like a three second echo over the phone line, if you could even get connected? Worldwide communication is something that is brand new. Global travel in Daniel, it says that the time of the end will be marked by people traveling to and for, to and throw, 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 whatever. <laughs> traveling around the world. Can't say that word. Easy for me to say. Traveling around the world. Global travel is something that up until a hundred years ago, people were traveling by horse. The same method of travel all up until about, about a hundred years ago. Horse and buggy. If you wanted to get somewhere, if you wanted to get from here to my house, which currently takes me a half an hour, 20 miles, that's a long trip in a carriage. We do that like it's nothing. We travel, we've got members of our congregation right now all over the, all over the United States, and we think that that's nothing. But that's brand new. No other generation had that ability. Daniel said that the last days would be marked by us going across, back and forth across the world and that knowledge would expand greatly. A knowledge explosion. Up until about 100 years ago, what we knew about the universe, what we knew about life, was pretty much static. Think about the knowledge explosion that has happened just in the last decade. Think about the technology and the things that we understood about the universe that have changed just in the last 10 years, let alone the last 20, or when 
we were sitting in front of the TV as a, as a kid. I remember sitting in front of a TV, you know, where you had the, the, the little clicker thing, you know. We had three channels, and I'd sit there on Saturday mornings and, and watch that. The remote control was my dad going, go change the channel. Our world has changed dramatically. This thing, more computing power in this thing than sent, the man, sent men to the moon, right? Our knowledge has exploded. No other generation can say that. Ours is the first. The gospel preached in all the world is a requirement before Jesus can return. This, again, could not have happened until our modern society. Not only do we have people that are going to all the world, but even in places where they're not allowed to go, like China or in North Korea, places where they're not allowed, the Internet allows the message to get to them. Again, things not possible before our generation. Signs in nature and global conflicts. Now I hear people say, well, you know, Jesus promised earthquakes and floods and pestilences and all that, but we've had those forever. This is true. We've had wars forever as well, but we've not known about them. This goes back to the communication thing. He said you'll hear wars and rumors of wars. Now it used to be if there was an earthquake in India that destroyed a village a hundred years ago, you'd never know about it. Maybe it would make a headline a month later in a, in a newspaper somewhere if you happen to be there. But now, if there's an earthquake in India, I get a notification immediately on my phone. Why? Because there's an app for that. Why not? So the signs in nature and global conflicts, it's not necessarily, though they are increasing and we can have that conversation, but our knowledge of them is also increasing. We know about things immediately. We can see how things are happening when they happen. And this was never a possibility prior to our generation. Massive proliferation of false prophets that have gone out. Again, this ties back to this instantaneous worldwide communication. The internet is a great thing, but the internet also allows for false messages to get out on a global scale in ways that are just amazing. When Jesus said that when you hear somebody say he's over there, you know, don't go out to see him, this is what I picture. There's stuff going all over the internet about you know, this guy or that guy or this message or that message that are false. They're leading us astray. We have not seen so many false prophets in the world making such a big impact as we see today, including the one man that I call out consistently, Joel Osteen, who is the pastor of the biggest church in America, who is a false prophet. He teaches a prosperity gospel. He teaches that if you know Jesus, everything in your life will go well, and if you just come and accept Jesus, and by the way, tie to his church, that you will be healthy, wealthy, and wise. He teaches the opposite of the gospel, and he's got a church of almost 40,000 congregants, a congregation of almost 40,000, and books everywhere. His books, you can see his bright, shining smile on bookshelves all over the world. He's sold millions of copies. And he's just one of many of a massive explosion of false prophets that are going out throughout the world. Also prophesied. And we're seeing that in a way that was never possible before this generation. Another thing that was promised is our ability to destroy all life. Jesus said that things would get so bad that if God did not interfere, no life would remain. That God had to come in. Now, this one is kind of debatable. Commentators argue about what Jesus was talking about there. But I do tend to see nuclear war as something that shows up fairly consistently in, in prophetic warning, at least the threat of nuclear war. Prior to this generation, we did not have the capacity to destroy the planet. And now, 
ever since the Cold War, ever since the, you know, the 80s, certainly, and the arms race between the United States and Russia, we have the capacity to destroy the world several times over. None of these things were possible prior to this generation. I'm not going to go through, I thought about it, but I don't want to keep you here all day, and this will go back to the homework. Going through and showing in Scripture how the timing kind of lays out in terms of how some people interpret the signs. Some people say that when Jesus talks about the fig tree, that he's referring to um, Israel coming back, and he says that this generation shall not pass away before all these things take place. Many people say that, yes, that was a reference to, when he said that, it was a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, but also a further reference to the end times, meaning when Israel is reconstituted, that generation that is alive when Israel is reconstituted will not pass away before all things come to a close. If that is a correct assumption, we are living in the end times, and Jesus can return at any moment. I'm not going to promise you that if Jesus comes back that you get to be raptured up before the bad stuff starts, like Tim LaHaye would tell you and Left Behind would tell you. Maybe. There's some biblical, biblical arguments there. But I would much rather prepare you and prepare me mentally to go through the Great Tribulation and then potentially be wrong and be raptured up before it than to prepare you mentally to be raptured up before it and be wrong and have you go through the Great Tribulation. The point is, when Jesus said to be ready, he meant, be ready. And when we look around and he chastised the people at his, of his time, he chastised them for not recognizing the signs, for having it all laid out in Scripture, and being too distracted, one, by their own theology, and two, by their own greed and pride and comfort, to see what was going on. And that's where we are today. We need to be looking at the signs and being ready. Now, I could be wrong. Jesus might not come back for another hundred years for another thousand years. I could be wrong. But whether I'm wrong or right, he commands us to be prepared for him to come back now. So if that is all true, what do we do? Well, let's go back to Second Peter. Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, here's the point. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. I mentioned this verse a couple of weeks ago. When Jesus says he's come to kindle a fire, this is the ultimate fulfillment of that fire, a literal fulfillment of this world being destroyed as God wipes it out with fire. In fact, just prior to this, he equates it to the flood of Noah. Says the first time it happened, he did it with water. The next time, he's doing it with fire. But there's a promise that after that happens, we will be resurrected in a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I'll also tell you another great place to go is the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the first things have passed away. That is what we are looking forward to. 
looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat. According to the promise, we are looking for a new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells, a place where God himself will walk among us and we will be called his children and there will be no death and no pain and no suffering. That's what we're looking forward to. Everything else that distracts you, everything else that you find yourself focusing on during the day, if it's not spreading the word of Jesus Christ and the salvation that comes through him, all of that is going to be burned up. It's gone. It's toast. It's dust. All your movies, all your games, all your cars, all your toys, everything is gone. It's dust. It's ashes. Paul says, I count it all as lost for the surpassing wealth of knowing Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is where we look. This is where we put our effort. We need to be ready. We need to be watching. We need to be looking. And in this world that is turning against us, we need to be loving. As the world looks at us and says, you bigot, you backwards Neanderthal, we need to be loving and express the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ so that they too may experience the peace and make it through this fire. It's coming. We are running out of time. And those people that you know that do not know Jesus Christ are running out of time. And if you do not know Jesus Christ, if you haven't given your life to him, if you haven't submitted yourself to his authority, you are running out of time. C.S. Lewis says that when the author steps on the stage, the play is over. The curtain falls. It's done. When Jesus comes back and steps on the stage, the play is over. There's no more making a decision at that point. Our time to spread the word of Jesus, our time to submit ourselves to his authority, is right now. Kyle Eidelman, in one of his books, says, the the Bible does not know the word tomorrow, the word is today. When you are following God, when you are making a decision, it's not tomorrow, it's today. Today, make your choice. Today, Tell people about the love that comes from Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you for your great plan. We thank you that you have placed us here today to be a part of that plan. And God, we ask for the strength and the courage, the boldness to be about your business, to not be distracted by the world, to not be a part of the world, but to be in it, spreading your love and shining brightly your light. God, we ask that you would give us wisdom and discernment as we go out throughout this week that you would use us, keep us ever vigilant, and show us those people that you would like us to tell about Jesus Christ. Give us the courage to do that. God, if there is anybody that listens to this message that does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord, I ask that you would open their heart, that you would turn on the light, flip the switch, so that they can see the truth and the peace that comes from knowing him, and the freedom that comes from releasing their bondage to sin in this world and giving their life. Jesus Christ. God, I am so thankful that you turned that light on for me. I'm so thankful that you have accepted me as your child, even though I am flawed and even though I falter every day. You are faithful. And you don't let my sin stand between me and your love. And neither do you let that stand between anybody here and the love that you have for them. God, I thank you. Pray that you bless us as we go throughout this week and that you keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray.